This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You remember the story of Goldilocks, right? She tries the bear's porridge until she finds the one that's just right. In many ways, all living creatures are like Goldilocks, looking for the perfect temperatures to thrive in. And climate change throws that out of whack. This month, CPR News looks at how a changing climate affects some of the most beloved places on Earth, national parks, including the Black Canyon of the Gunnison on Colorado's western slope. It's beyond words. It's fabulous. It's gorgeous. It's unbelievable. Tina Smiley of Las Cruces, New Mexico, visited the park recently. So did CPR's Nathaniel Miner. He tells us how heat affects the many climbers who flock there. There's no time for sleeping in if you want to climb the Black Canyon of the Gunnison. It's about 6 o'clock in the morning when I meet climbers Matt Perez and Matt Lautzenheiser of Denver. They're wrangling gear, and most importantly, coffee. My coffee cup, yeah. You can put it on there. I can share. I don't this is their first trip to the Black Canyon. They're up early because the climbs here are long, and it gets hot as the sun gets higher. The two friends have climbed together for years. They're training for a climbing trip to Patagonia. And on this early June day, they think they'll be on the rock wall for a good six hours. Perez says that means they need to plan carefully. We'll just have water, food, one layer, our gear, and that's it. Water is especially important. Perez says some friends had a bad experience at what locals call the black. They must have just miscalculated how hot it was going to be and just totally epicked on the wall. Epicked. That's climbing lingo for when you're in over your head. Had no water, crawled over like the top uh, in the last, you know, the end of the day and had just covered in salt crystals from where they were, you know, just sweating all day long. And Funny story. He may call it a funny story, but Perez takes safety seriously. He takes three liters of water. That's twice as much as what he usually carries. Climbers at the Black have always had to worry about the heat. Highs in July and August can hit 100 degrees, but it's getting even hotter. The park's average annual temperature has gone up nearly 3 degrees Fahrenheit since 1896. The forecasted high on this day is in the mid-80s. So Perez and Lausenheiser settle on a climb that will be in the shade most of the day, and it's actually one of the shorter routes in the Black. We scramble down one of the canyon's gullies to get there. The Gunnison River rages a few hundred feet below us as Lautzenheiser clips in. Ready? Yeah. Good match. Right, the two climbers are here at the tail end of the park's spring season. And when people climb is shifting. As temps get higher, the Black Canyon is seeing more climbers in April and September. And that comes with its own challenge, less daylight. Some people underestimate the length of the route they're actually climbing. That's Ryan Reese, the park's lead climbing ranger. But you'll climb, then it gets dark if you don't have headlamps or don't know where you're going. Sometimes people find, like, some sort of ledge to sit on. And uh, it gets dark, and you just kind of sit down and make the best of the night and first light start climbing. The Park Service anticipates temperatures will increase another 4 or 5 degrees in the next 35 years or so. And Reese says as temperatures rise, more climbers will visit in March and October, when there's even less daylight. And he says park staff will have to do their best to keep them safe by helping them choose the right route for the right day. Climate change is affecting the Black Canyon in other ways as well. Here on the North Rim, park ecologist Dangule Bacchus shows me different native grasses she's working to protect. You've got your mutton grass, your Indian rice grass, also has needle and thread. Bacchus says other parks, like Rocky Mountain National Park, can see the effects of climate change more clearly. 
Snow melts earlier there, and the high alpine tundra is suffering as a result. Rocky's pine forests are dying as well. But six hours south of there at the Black Canyon, Baca says the landscape is holding steady so far. Even if we don't have glaciers that are melting right in front of our eyes, you know, it, we are going to see and feel those impacts. So we've, we've got to get ready for it. That means protecting native species and trying to restore them. One of Bacchus's big projects now is reintroducing native grasses and shrubs on the site of what was a muddy old cattle pond. She wants it to be good habitat for the Gunnison sage-grouse, which is listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. But in some areas, it's difficult to know just what she's trying to restore the park to. It's hard to say what it actually looked like, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, So we're kind of going off of what we see now and what we think you know, it should look like, and, and, and hopefully this will be what will last. Baca says the park staff are in a lucky spot. They know the climate is changing, but they have a little time to figure out how to best get ready for it. Our habitat is a little bit more resilient to begin with, maybe, because we're not at those extreme elevations where they're, you know, kind of feeling it, I think. It's mid-afternoon at the North Rim campground. Perez and Lautzenheiser have just returned to the canyon's rim. They're tired and happy. That was good. It's a fun time. Really nice, really nice route. Lautzenheiser explains they were in the shade until the end of the climb. Still, the two friends were ready to get out of the sun. If you're going to expose yourself to the heat, you know, climb in the heat, then you just, you got to be smart about it and find the best way to do it. And for these two climbers, that means chasing the shade and scheduling their next trip to the Black Canyon a few weeks earlier in the season. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Now, you might not think there's much of a difference between it being 74 degrees out and 78, but according to the National Park Service, a rise of just a few degrees can lead to a slump in visitors. Gregor Skirman is an ecologist, and he joins us from the Park Service's Climate Change Office in Fort Collins. Gregor, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. You co-wrote a paper published about a year ago that looked at climate change and park visitation. And it turns out there's a kind of threshold when it comes to temperature and attendance. Is that right? That's right. And, you know, what we say in the paper, and you alluded to it in the lead-in, is that uh, humans, just like other biota, have preferred climate conditions. And we were interested in how uh, changing conditions, particularly warming, which is one of the more central and certain aspects of, of climate change, how it would influence visitors and visitation. Did you find a magic number, a magic threshold? Well, what we find, uh, and this is looking across hundreds of Park Service units and across 30 years of data, so it's a long-term study of visitors and visitation and their response to climate. And what we find is that visitation steadily increases until the average monthly temperature gets into those mid to high 70s. And beyond that, it fairly uh, fairly sharply uh, drops as temperatures uh, continue to rise. All right. So it hits about, what, 77 degrees, I think, and you start to see that slump. That's right. And I like how, how you put this. We are creatures in the parks like every other creature, and we seek our, our optimal temperature. So in a way, you studied park visitors as just other aspects of, of park wildlife. Well, we did, and, and that makes sense to us because uh, several of us on the paper have an ecological background, so we, we think and focus a lot 
on our natural resources in parks and beyond and how they would respond to these same changes. So would you call the slump when things approach 80 degrees, the slump in visitors, would you call it a significant, sizable? Yeah, but I guess I would say that the rise in visitation up towards that average monthly temperature in the mid to high 70s is is sort of similar in its significance and, and its its slope, as we would say technically. And so what this means is when we look at any individual park and we ask how might visitation change in the future, in a, let's say in a particular month, uh, it really depends where that mean monthly temperature is today, what will happen. So for instance, in a park like Black Canyon, um, when we look at rising spring temperatures, uh, just like uh, your special on the park and on those climbers suggested, people are thinking and acting in ways that expand that season. They're coming earlier in the spring and later in the fall. And that's just about finding those, those preferred desired conditions. And what we found in our system-wide analysis is that for most parks, they uh, are likely uh, under warming to see an increase in visitation. Hmm. But this is a shifting of schedule and potentially, I suppose, of money and staffing that has all kinds of consequences, doesn't it? Yeah, it has a lot of implications. And, and again, your special on the Black Canyon kind of made that clear that, you know, climbers in that case may shift their activities more toward the spring and fall, and that's fine, but those days are shorter. And so there, that's an illustration of one of the complexities of climate adaptation, that we're dealing with complex systems with complex relationships. And when we change one factor, in this case just the temperature by a few degrees, we get shifts in human behavior that may put, the, put the, their traditional activities into days that are shorter. And so you may have issues with people completing a climb in in that illustration before the end of the day. And so certainly an important part of our mission is to ensure visitor health and safety. And so that seems like an important place to focus in in that example. How does this information benefit parks in cold weather? So we've talked a lot about heat, but there will be changes, won't there, that, uh, that could bring about cold weather? Um, absolutely. I mean, the changes vary across the park service. Uh, in general, in most parks, we are seeing warming. In fact, a, another study that came out uh, that included some of the authors on on the paper we're discussing today showed that 80% of our parks are already at the extreme warm end of their historical ranges of temperature variation. Mm. Um, And so the norm for most parks is that they're on the warm end and getting warmer. And so that that seems like the most important thing to focus on when we're taking a system-wide look. Now, what that means is for, for colder parks, for our high latitude and high elevation parks, uh, they may be seeing some some fairly significant expansions in visitation, both in terms of the peaks uh, and in terms of the shoulder seasons. Uh, the, basically, the length of the visitation season itself is expanding. Interesting. So those are parks that have today more of a limited shelf life um, or or visiting period, and those could grow. Absolutely. And similarly, some of our warmest parks uh, may have uh, some of their visitation shift to the cooler months, and they may see uh, some declines in, in the warmer months. I wonder if there are examples of the former, I don't know, like maybe Arcadia up in Maine. What, what are some of the parks that could see longer visitation periods? Yeah, Acadia is one of the ones we highlight in our paper, and in particular, uh, what the projections suggest is an earlier onset of the visitation 
um, season, but also an expansion uh, in the fall, as well as an increase in, in peak visitation, basically an increase in those number of summer weekends uh, when parks are confronting some congestion challenges. And indeed, our, our work uh, in our program, in the Climate Change Response Program, with that park in the past year has confirmed that they are already seeing uh, and have been seeing for some time an expansion of their visitation season such that historically they might have looked at Labor Day as sort of the beginning of the end of that visitation season. Uh, then they, they pushed that date back to Veterans Day, and now they're looking at Thanksgiving. So you'll hear this from a lot of northern and high elevation parks that these changes are ongoing. I think I erroneously said Arcadia and ought to have said Acadia. I appreciate the correction there. What could this mean for a place like Rocky Mountain National Park, something we focused on last week in this series? Well, Rocky Mountain is a park where the relationship uh, historically between temperature and visitation is incredibly strong, and it has sort of a a standard uh, peak uh, with its warmest temperatures in July, and indeed, it's, it's peak visitation in July as well. And again, uh, the, the sort of highest mean monthly temperature in that park is in the high 50s, approaching 60. So there's room to grow, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, under a warming uh, climate. And indeed, this is what the projections suggest, that uh, as we've said for Acadia, both the increase in peak visitation and the expansion of the visitation season are anticipated based on warming. So there are some 300 million visitors to national parks each year, and many of them are repeat customers. Uh, I wonder if someone who doesn't normally visit a national park, a Gregor, should should pay mind to your findings. Why is this important, I suppose, beyond the, the kind of national park customer base? Right. That's a great question, Ryan, and you're right. Over 300 million uh, people visited parks last year, and that contributed over $32 billion to the nation's economy, supported almost 300,000 jobs. So it's a major contribution uh, to the economy and to the park service. Now, from the perspective of a visitor, and perhaps a visitor who uh, hasn't visited a park before, uh, what one may want to think about is long-term historical averages of climate versus some of the extremes uh, that we've been seeing, particularly in the last year. uh, For those who've been paying attention to uh, reports and pronouncements coming from NOAA, uh, from the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric... uh, uh, um, Boy, I'm forgetting my Administration, that's But from NOAA administration. Thank you, Ryan. Um, Basically, what what we're seeing is almost every month in the past year has been a record-breaking month, and that's unusual in and of itself. And so um, it would behoove visitors to think about the kind of weather they're experiencing in the month that they're heading to a park and ask themselves, is is this different from the long-term average conditions around which I may have planned my visit? And in so many ways, uh, as we have laid out already in this series, national parks are something of the canary in the coal mine when it comes to climate change. They're often in extreme environments that are seeing these changes first. Gregor, thanks for being with us. You're very welcome, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Gregor Skierman, an ecologist at the National Park Service's Climate Change Office, which is in Fort Collins. And you can help inform our climate coverage. What changes have you noticed, perhaps in your own backyard? What would you like our reporters to focus on? Email environment at cpr.org. Again, environment at cpr.org. 
Coming up, a quirky news story that went viral becomes an opera. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's probably one of the worst art restorations ever. Four years ago, a Spanish woman in her 80s named Cecilia Jimenez tried to restore a fresco of Jesus. He wound up looking more like Fozzie Bear. The image went viral and even inspired a skit on Saturday Night Live. I know ruin, I feast. Here, it look good. Why everybody's so mad at me? Everybody's so angry. They're in my church. It's Jesus he owned. He fought apart, I feast. Now I want my money. I have to buy a wine. <laughs> well, Jimenez's story is now an opera. In my dream, I was brazen proud, but my strength has vanished, my eyesight so poor, my eyesight so poor. That's an aria from Behold the Man. Andrew Flack is the librettist. He lives in Centennial, south of Denver, and Paul Fowler of Boulder is the composer. The opera premieres in Spanish August 20th in Borja the very town where this all took place. There is an English version, as you heard there, too. And, uh, gentlemen, welcome to the program. Hi there. Thank you so much. So, in August 2012, you read the headline, Andrew, Elderly Woman Destroys 19th Century Spanish Fresco in Botched Restoration. Uh, Again, this was in that small northeastern Spanish town of Borja, and you say you knew instantly this would make a great opera. What about it screamed opera to you? Well, it had all the elements, you know, love, honor, redemption. It just had the, the, and the conflict. You know, when this happened, she was taken to task internationally. There were memes created that flew all over the world. And she was really ridiculed, you know, and and, and put her into a a real funk. I mean, she was really in in depression for months. But I saw that there would, could be a happy ending. I saw that there was a silver lining. And Paul had been asking me for years to come up with an idea for an opera. He's from the opera world. I'm mm. not. And so I, I, I respoke and we started working and that was four years ago and we are now finished. And Paul, when Andrew came to you with this idea, what did you think? Oh, I thought it was great. Um, not only for its operatic qualities, but also, you know, we're, we have all these sort of inherent fights that we see in the modern world between faith and belief and ridicule and, you know, the economic times were really hard at the time and to see, you know, the beginnings of a tiny little economic engine out of something completely ridiculous. Those are all really attractive contemporary themes that we don't get to see in opera a lot. Because this little Spanish town that, you know, few had heard of outside of Borja became something of a destination after this story went viral. Absolutely. There have been 150,000 people that came through there in the first two years. And that number has grown now, I I think, maybe 200,000. To see her botched restoration. Yes. And have their picture taken with it. You know, age of selfies here. (laughs) (laughs) And selfie sticks. They haven't unrestored it, that is to say. No, not at all. In fact, there was some word about it. At first, they, they really wanted to sweep it under the rug. They were either going to cover it. Or, you know, they, they, the town really didn't know what to do with it at first. But no, they haven't now. And it's, it's, uh, they have it behind plexiglass. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's very much on display. There was even a change.org petition that came up right away saying, don't change 
change it, don't change it. So. Don't change it. Andrew, you were listing some of the qualities that make it a good opera, and you said love. Mm-hmm. How does love enter the picture? Well, it's her, her faith. I mean, it's really her love of God that pr- provided the stability for for Cecilia not to panic in this situation. She was depressed. She did feel horrible that she had made this this botched work. But at the same time, she stayed with her faith. She thought if she just sits with it and, you know, God has a plan for her. And, and darn if he didn't, or darn if she didn't think he did, you know. And it, it, worked, out, it worked out for the best. It, it's, it's kind of that idea that your disaster can also be your miracle. Hmm. Let's hear more of... Her first aria titled, It's Faith That Guides My Brush. I enjoy being known as an artist. My modest operandi. Truth be told, I'm not an accomplished not She sings, I'm not that accomplished, not like Martinez. That's Elias Garcia Martinez, the Fresco's original artist. So you, in 2013, Drew, actually traveled to Borja to meet Cecilia. And I understand you had most of the text for this aria already written. How much did you change it after meeting her? (sighs) I spent two hours with her the first day. And she was telling me, she had never read it. She was giving me lines that I had already written. The, about Martinez, that, that very line I had written, but then she told me that same line when I was in her presence. Huh. That I didn't, you know, she was kind of embarrassed that she didn't have an art degree, but, you know, she wasn't as accomplished as Martinez. And, you know, feeling a little bit uh, badly about that, but I had written that line and then she repeated it to me. Her restoration looked very different from the original Ecce Homo, Latin for Behold the Man. One journalist described uh, her take as looking more like a hairy monkey rather than Christ the Savior. Many said she ruined it. Um, but when you spoke with her, what was her take on what, on the image that emerged? By that time, Ryan, she thought it was a miracle. She, I said, what do you think of this now? She said, well, I think he's kind of cute. <laughs> and I said, well, what else? But I mean, what do you think about this whole process? Here you've been ridiculed and you've been made fun of around the world, but, but now tourists are coming and you've helped revive the town. And, and what do you think of all this? And she said, well, I, I, I have to believe it's a miracle. Huh. It became an Internet sensation for sure. And the song Come Get Show Eche mm-hmm. is about how Borja indeed gets the world's attention. Come to Borja, baby. I don't know what it is. I could listen to that song all day, and it's been stuck in my head since I've heard it. There are pop influences. There's like one song that's kind of Lady Gaga-esque, actually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And and Paul, really, you have drawn on Gregorian chants, Spanish opera, Renaissance motets, just to name a few. How do you make all those different inspirations sound cohesive? 
uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's an interesting the question. I mean, the he beauty, the beauty of this piece and the internet as a backdrop is that the internet is all about pluralism in music. You know, you can listen to anything from anywhere, from any time, kind oh. of at the touch of a button. And one of the things I was attracted to musically about this piece was how that could happen in an opera, how we could bring in, you know, music from all over and still have opera singers singing it and. You know, music's music's like a big home that can suit a whole lot of people. So in this way, it's hard to break music. So why not explore where it can go? That's so cool. So the the music being reflective of the democratizing force of the Internet, which is how this story spread around the world. When I heard that track, I thought a little bit about Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoats. Sure. You know, because there's like, there's like, you know, biblical ties and it, it makes hip, you know, mm-hmm. the faith. What do you, what do you think? Well, I, I don't, I think we're making hip the feeling of faith, not necessarily promoting a faith. Um, and I think in a way we're trying to make hip opera. And, and we're <laughs> okay. making hip this story, you know, the, you know, out of this ridicule came an incredible amount of creativity. It's, it's our judgment that determines whether it be good or bad creativity. Mm. But, but we're, we're playing the same card, you know, out of this crazy story, we can have all of this different music and we can explore these themes that are still contemporary, like faith. Um, but, you know, often challenged by the very medium that made the story famous, which is the internet. So it's, it's a great opportunity to kind of play with new materials within an old tradition. You are listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And maybe you remember a few years ago, this story out of Spain that went viral. It was about a fresco in the town of Borja that had been uh, redone by a woman with not, you know, um, any artistic training. And uh, she was she was mocked. She was ridiculed for her restoration of the Christ figure in this fresco. We're speaking with two Coloradans who turned this story, if you can believe it, into an opera. And um, Andrew, I, I guess you decided to make two versions: one in Spanish, one in English. We did. We yeah. started, of course, in English, and uh, about halfway through, we realized that hey, you know, our, our Really, our first primary goal here is to have it performed in the town where it's set. We think that's just so exciting that, you know, we're, we're creating this little valentine for them. Well, it better be in Spanish so they can they can perform it and understand it. So, yes, we have. We've uh, we've translated the work into Spanish. So now we have two productions. We have a we'll have an English production and a Spanish production. But of course, it's not just as easy as plugging it into Google Translate. <laughs> No. We tried. It doesn't work. Okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah I... Syllables differ and rhymes differ. So was it like writing a new opera? Um, not necessarily the music, although we do have to adapt the music so that the Spanish can feel as um, smooth and flowing natural. as the English does and as natural to, to speech. So we've worked with uh, several people, actually, around bringing the translation in. Drew, do you want to talk about Hector? Mm. Yeah, we have a, a, a wonderful Spanish man that, that translates. Um, the translation has really been more painstaking than I ever thought. I, I've never done anything like this before. Yeah. And it's been incredibly precise. And Paul because he's the perfectionist that he is it must be absolutely right on i thought our translator was a had that same ability and he does but paul takes it to the next level 
Was there a word that was particularly or a concept that was particularly difficult to to convey? Um, Concepts less so. More um, some of the things that are really tied to the music. Like that come get your eche line is something that only really makes sense. In English. In English because it doesn't, I mean... It's ridiculous, but Getcho Eche isn't even, I mean, but what's fun it's about it is not even English. The, yeah, what's fun about it is like the parallelism of the ch sound in Getcho Eche. And, right. So how did you solve that in Spanish? Um, you know, our, our translator found found a line. He says, Compren suecte, which is the same as come Getcho Eche. And it doesn't quite ring the same way, but it's still fun and funky. Say it again. Compren suecte. Compren suecte. Oh boy, that is not easy to say. Well, in the end, you say the opera is not really about a Spanish woman tampering with art. That's just the catalyst, because the people of Borja do start to see Cecilia as the hero rather than the villain. We hear that in the song Beautiful Swan. Okay, the thing about internet sensations is they don't tend to last very long. What makes you think this opera would would last longer than the viral sensation this than you know it's based on? I think that's a great question and I don't have the answer to it. Paul would say every year we better finish because th- how long is this going to be of of uh, of interest? Right, people are going to remember this every soon. year, every year on on the fourth this is the fourth anniversary now. Every year there's press. In fact, this morning I had an interview, my second interview with the New York Times. And there'll be a piece in Sunday's paper. So, I mean, it's just the, 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 the you know, really. I Fancy. Mean, I know it. it this, there's, a, there's a quality about the piece. And I do think it's about redemption. And I do think it's about a woman who has followed her faith and it's turned out well. I mean, it's a, it's a, it has a happy ending. I think that I think the happy ending has a lot to do with with its with its uh, ongoing popularity. Gentlemen, gracias. Thanks for being with us. Indeed, thank you. Mm. Librettist Andrew Flack of Centennial and Boulder composer Paul Fowler. Their new opera is "Behold the Man," Eche Homo. It premieres in the Spanish village of Borja, in uh, Spain, August twentieth. You can listen to the song "Come Get Your Eche." in its entirety at cprnews.org. Coming up, why write about reality? We can write about multiple realities. We speak with Durango author Blake Crouch. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's leave reality now and explore some alternatives. That's what Durango author Blake Crouch does in his new sci-fi thriller, Dark Matter. Crouch may be best known for his trilogy, Wayward Pines, which was adapted for television. He joins my colleague, Nathan Heffel. Blake, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So your main character is a physicist named Jason Dessen, and suddenly his life is not his own. Tell, tell us about him. 
Well, Jason Dessen lives with his family in Chicago. He is, I think, like a lot of us, happy, but sometimes thoughtful about paths not taken. And we meet him one night as he's walking home, and he is abducted by this masked man at gunpoint, given this very mysterious drug. And when he wakes up, he's in Chicago, but it's no Chicago that he's ever seen. His wife is not his wife. In fact, he's never been married. He doesn't have a son. And instead of being this middling college professor teaching undergraduates the basics of physics, he is this world-renowned physicist who has created something incredible. You've said you've been working toward this book your entire career. Why? I have been fascinated by the science that underpins dark matter, which is quantum mechanics going back at least a decade. But I, full disclosure, I am a English major, creative writing minor, <laughs> and I took as few science and math classes as possible in uh, college. So as much as I wanted to write about quantum mechanics, I was incredibly intimidated by how daunting the field of science is. And I just wanted to take as much time as I could to research and feel like I would have something profound to say about it without sounding like a total idiot. And, and so it took 10 years to, to get to that point. And, and, you know, something incredible about that, you know, follow, that that's interesting to me. You really wanted to find something unique in that science and, and it took you so long to find it. It took me a long time to find it. Um, I think when you say quantum mechanics is the engine of a thriller, people immediately just fall asleep because what's quantum mechanics? It just is, talks about how particles behave at the subatomic level. But what, what I find fascinating about it is that particles at that level are, they appear to behave as if they're in multiple realities at the same time. And when you start to scale that up to our world and the ramifications of quantum mechanics at the macro level in the world that we see. I mean, we're made of particles, and if particles of this fine level behave this way, are our lives actually an illusion? In other words, are we not existing in a universe, but in a multiverse, which is all possible realities and histories that are connected by this matrix of our choices? And when I, when I found some science that supported that notion, I got really excited and thought, well, yes, this is still going to be a speculative science fiction thriller, but there's actually some scientific breakthroughs that are happening that suggest maybe there is a multiverse. And that's essentially what happens to Jason. He ends up in his multiverse, and, and he's in a place he doesn't know, but it's, it's just kind of like where he knows? Exactly. He, he winds up in this alternate reality, which traces back to a choice he made 15 years earlier. He was right on the cusp of making this big scientific breakthrough in his late 20s. He's a genius, an up-and-coming, up-and-comer in his field. But he also crashes into this woman, Daniela, who becomes the love of his life, just as he's about to make this breakthrough. And he chooses to make a life with her instead of sticking to the rigors of research and, and spending thousands of hours in clean rooms with particles and, and trying to succeed as a scientist. He wants this, this family life. But when he comes into this uh, first reality, 
what he realizes is that this is the reality that exists if he hadn't decided to be with his wife, if he had instead decided to pursue the research. The other path, essentially. The other path, exactly. And you're not, uh, you're, you're no stranger to these weird realities. As we've said, you're also the writer behind the Wayward Pines trilogy, which was turned into a TV show in 2015. It's about a Secret Service agent that awakens from a car accident in a town that's, that's really just a bit off. Okay, what the hell is happening? They're watching us. They're listening. You could be happy here, Ethan. That definitely sounds like an eerie series, and it looks like it might return for its third season. Has that been confirmed yet? It hasn't been confirmed yet. Um, We just wrapped up our second season. It was uh, the number one scripted show of the summer again, and we the executive producer and director in Night Shyamalan, who's kind of my partner in crime on this, he and I have an idea for a third season that would definitively conclude this series. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. So how's it been working with him and then also seeing your books turned into TV? It's amazing. It's a dream come true for a writer. You always imagine, you know, what would my characters look like if they walked around and lived and breathed and and having your work turned into film and television gives you an opportunity to experience that. I I still remember probably the most surreal moment of my entire career was the first time I went up to Vancouver, which is where we shoot Wayward Pines. And I'd never been on a film set before, but I got there and I was walking through all of the sound stages where they had built this town that up until then had only existed in my mind and and on the page and getting to see the detail with which they had brought this eerie little town to life and the sheriff's office and the details and the little snow globe that sat on his desk, which was the first image I'd ever had of of the book itself and and was taken straight out of the book. It, it, It was quite a surreal moment. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Durango author Blake Crouch. His new book, Dark Matter, explores alternate realities. Let's take a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Durango author Blake Crouch. He wrote the trilogy that inspired the TV show Wayward Pines. His new book is called Dark Matter, and it asks the question, what if the person living your life isn't you? Uh, your new book, Dark Matter, is grounded in science, quantum mechanics, superposition. It, it even references the famous thought experiment Schrodinger's cat. Uh, some listeners may not be familiar with it. So I found this little YouTube tutorial clip that, that's helpful. Uh, it's also good background for your book. You put a cat in a bunker with some unstable gunpowder that has a 50% chance of blowing up in the next minute and a 50% chance of doing nothing. The gunpowder is Einstein's version. Schrodinger preferred poisonous gas. But whatever. So until we look in the bunker... We don't know whether the cat is dead or alive. And when we do look, it is either dead or alive. So if we repeat the experiment enough times with enough cats and bunkers and gunpowder, we'll see that half the time, Kitty survives. And half the time, Kitty goes bye-bye. The quantum mechanical interpretation is that before we look, the cat is in a superposition. It's both dead and alive. And our act of looking forces nature's decision. So our curiosity kills the cat. So how does that fit in your story? Well, in Dark Matter, instead of putting a cat in the box, I essentially put a human being in a box. 
I, I used the principles of this thought experiment, which was actually created to show how counterintuitive quantum mechanics truly is, the idea that something can be alive and dead at the same time. And I built a box that is a 12 by 12 cube, and it stops any sort of exterior stimuli from entering the inside of the box. And we call it destroying the quantum state or the wave function or the superposition. So in, in other words, a man can walk inside the box, close the door, take this drug that shuts down the part of his brain responsible for observation, and essentially he is standing on the gateway to the multiverse. He is standing on the precipice of all possible realities. And it's visualized in this book as a long, infinite corridor, basically this box repeating off into infinity, with door after door after door after door, a, a really chilling and, and haunting image. But one I think is appropriate for considering the road not taken, because we often think of our choices as either a door we opened or did not open. So is this like the version of your of your Doctor Who TARDIS? Is, is that what this is? I've been told it is, although I <laughs> hate to say not a Doctor Who fanatic. Uh, but yes, I have been asked more than once if this is my version of the TARDIS. So I guess my answer would be yes. <laughs> Question mark? <laughs> Question mark? <laughs> I, I'm going to have you read from the from your book uh, a point where Jason is in the box with Amanda, who's a therapist and a possible love interest from one of his alternate universes. Sure. Um, so they're sitting in the box uh, during this scene. The only physical sensations are the chill of the metal bleeding through my clothes and the pressure of Amanda's head against my shoulder. You're different than him, she says. Who, I ask. My Jason, she says. How so? Softer. He had a real hard edge when you got down to it. The most driven human being I've ever met. Were you his therapist, I ask, sometimes. Was he happy, I ask. I sense her pondering my question in the dark. What, I say. Am I putting you in a doctor-patient confidentiality quandary? She responds, technically, you two are the same person. It's new territory for sure, but no, I wouldn't say he was happy. He lived an intellectually stimulating but ultimately one-dimensional life. All he did was work. In the last five years, he didn't have a life outside the lab. He practically lived there. I say, you know your Jason is the one who did this to me. I'm here right now because several nights ago, someone abducted me at gunpoint while I was walking. He took me to an abandoned power plant, drugged me, asked me a bunch of questions about my life, the choices I made, if I was happy, if I would have done things differently. The memories are back now. Then I woke up in your lab, in your world. I think your Jason did this to me. Amanda says, you're suggesting that he went into the box, somehow found your world, your life, and switched places with you? Do you think he was capable, I ask? I don't know. That's crazy. I ask, who else would have done this to me? Amanda is quiet for a moment. She says, finally, Jason was obsessed with the path not taken. He talked about it all the time. What do you think you can bring to the well-trod road of stories about alternate realities? Because we've heard this before. People go somewhere else, a different reality, different time. What are you bringing that's different? Two things, I think. A lot of the alternate reality stories I've encountered in the past were much harder science and didn't have at their core 
the human story. And Dark Matter, for all the thrillers that I've written to date, is my first love story. That is the core of the story about alternate realities. And what I'm doing with the science in this book, it's not just a conceit to get to see other worlds and other versions of yourself. It's a, a serious exploration about the path not taken and the nature of regret and identity and reality. And I also think the third act of this book, when, well, I don't want to spoil too much, but I will say the third act of this book, I think, takes the concept to a level where I've never seen it taken before. And it, it's something I'm really excited for readers to experience. And I think that's a good point you made about the fact that there is science, but there's also heart in this book. And, and you, you, you feel there's more heart than science in this. Is that, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I, I wrote this book for people who love science fiction. I also wrote this book for people who hate science fiction. I mean, I have a very love-hate relationship with the genre. Um, I have a hard time with spaceships and laser guns and characters who are just there to support a, uh, you know, a scientific conceit. What's most important to me is having characters who are relatable and whose lives in some way reflect our own and who remind us of all the things that we lie awake thinking about, you know, in the dark of the night and should I have done this? What if I hadn't done that? In a way, the sci-fi part of the book is truly just a means to explore what do our lives look like at the end of the road not taken. One reviewer called your book, It's a Wonderful Life for the 21st Century. What do you think of that? I love that. I really love that. I think that underscores what I was trying to do with this book, which is to imbue it with a real humanity and a profound love story. I mean, this book is ultimately about a man who, in middle age, has begun to question the choices that he makes. And so he is sent down this insane journey, which shows him what his life might have been like had he taken another path, had he opened a different door. But ultimately, it's about him trying to find home and what does home mean to him and questions like, am I living the best version of myself? Am I living the life I was meant to be living? And you know, by virtue of those questions, this epic quest to find home and the people and the life that you love. So it, it, it very much shares a beating heart with It's a Wonderful Life. Although, if Christopher Nolan had directed it. Blake, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Blake Crouch of Durango is the author of the new sci-fi book, or part sci-fi at least, Dark Matter. He spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel. Finally today, James Cooley has spent eight years making electronic beats and melodies in his Littleton bedroom as well as around the country, in Seattle, Chicago, and Brooklyn. He's put out five albums and three EPs under the name Mesita.
are hearing his recent single, All Out in the Open. James Cooley rarely performs live, but he recently stopped into our studio for a unique Mesita performance. Instead of electronica, he performed the track solo with acoustic guitar. Something magical, I don't know what you are. A bold and sudden force, it's something new to me. It's all the greatest thing, now you the company. Anyway, I think I'm losing my mind. Ooh, all out in the open. Recorded in the CPR Performance Studio, All Out in the Open by Mesida, a.k.a. James Cooley. I'm Ryan Warner with Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters.